0: This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we pray for ourselves the same thing that we sang over our children would you send out your light and your truth that they may lead us? And I pray, Lord, that we would gaze upon the face of God and the radiant face of Jesus Christ and in seeing you that we would be transformed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> you may be seated. <clears throat> Well, last weekend, Susan and our three kids went back to Annapolis to spend some time with her parents who live there. And while I was home alone, I took advantage of the chance to go see a movie in the theaters, which I think is what we now call self care. I saw the new Top Gun, which is still playing sporadically. It was a great time. Enjoyed myself. And the reason I'm starting my sermon by telling you what I did last Saturday. It's because the main action sequence in Top Gun reminded me an awful lot of how conversations around one of the big themes in our gospel lesson often go. So let me describe the scene to you, and there's no spoilers here, so don't worry. Well, the central mission of Top Gun requires jets to speed through a very narrow canyon so that the jets can bomb a rogue state's nuclear program. And the ridges of this canyon are lined with surface-to-air missiles all along the route. As the jets fly through the canyon, they're below the radar of the missile systems. And as soon as they fly out of the canyon, which they inevitably must do to accomplish the mission, they show up on the radar and the missiles immediately begin to fly. Now, one of the big themes in our passage this morning is reparations. And in my experience, talking about reparations can feel a lot like this scene in Top Gun. So long as you stay quiet, fly below the radar, there's no problem. But once you say the word out loud, and it shows up on the radar, missiles begin to fly. That's crazy, impractical, too complicated, unnecessary. That's political, pointless. Sometimes the first missile that flies is simply laughter I know reparations is a controversial topic, it's a buzzword for some and it's a bad word for others, but it's an important word for us to wrestle with because it's in our passage this morning, if not the word, the concept. And on the heels of the table talk, the event that we held a couple weeks ago, or hosted I should say, on reparations, I'm glad that we have the opportunity to look at the story of Zacchaeus together this morning. This story is one of the most important biblical foundations for reparations, which simply means repairing the damage caused by sin. Now with all that said, I want you to know that my sermon this morning is not about reparations. My sermon is about grace. The passage really is about the scandal of grace and its effects. What I hope that we'll see this morning is that when we understand grace when we understand what it really is and what it does, then reparations will look a lot less like a stumbling block and a lot more like a natural step on the journey of following Jesus Christ. And as we reflect on the scandal of grace this morning, the first thing I want us to see is that Jesus's treatment of Zacchaeus is arguably the most scandalous thing that he does up until this point in time in the gospel. Now the gospel of Luke can be roughly divided into two halves. The first half is about Jesus's early years, his birth, and his ministry in Galilee in the north of Jerusalem. And the second half beginning in chapter nine is all about Jesus's journey, Jesus on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to do what he came to do, to die for those who don't deserve it. As Jesus gets closer and closer to Jerusalem, closer, and closer to his ultimate purpose, Luke describes these various encounters that Jesus has along the way. With each encounter comes a new surprise. With each encounter comes a new surprise about grace and about the kind of people who are fit or who are unfit for the kingdom of God. And We're gonna quickly look at four of those encounters that lead us to Zacchaeus. So back in chapter 17 on the way to Jerusalem, Jesus encounters 10 lepers. You might remember Father Jonathan's sermon on that a few weeks ago. Luke takes care to tell us that as these lepers approach Jesus, they do so from a safe distance. They kept space because of their skin disease. It made them unclean so they couldn't be around people. The lepers were social outcasts, but they cried out for mercy and Jesus healed them. After this in chapter 18, Luke tells us that people brought little babies to Jesus. Apparently, the disciples thought that little babies weren't worth the time and attention of Jesus, and so the disciples rebuked those parents. But Jesus rebukes his disciples. He said, no, 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 let the kids come to me, for to such belong the kingdom of God. And After the children, Luke tells of the sad encounter with the rich young ruler, the wealthy man who turns away from Jesus because following Jesus means giving up his wealth. And upon hearing this, upon hearing that this wealthy and seemingly righteous man was not fit for the kingdom of God, the people said, well then who can be saved? And lastly, the fourth encounter just before entering Jericho, Jesus walks past a blind man who's begging along the side of the road. A crowd is blocking him from Jesus and so he makes a scene. He cries out for mercy. The people rebuked the blind man, but Jesus hears him. He notices him and he calls him forward and he heals him. And when all of the people see it, they all praise God. After these four encounters, our passage tells us that Jesus enters Jericho, which is a city about 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem And this is Jesus's last stop before his final destination. And here's where we meet Zacchaeus. As Luke tells the story, I think we're meant to see Zacchaeus as a kind of prism. All the other people that Jesus meets along the way are visible in this man, in this encounter. This chief tax collector is kind of the culmination of all of the previous four encounters. And so we're gonna look at them in reverse order here. First, Zacchaeus is like the blind man he couldn't see Jesus because of the crowds and he goes to great lengths so that he might encounter Jesus on his way and be healed second Jesus or Zacchaeus is like the rich young ruler he's a rich man whose wealth was an obstacle but unlike the rich young ruler Zacchaeus' story has a happy ending and then we see that Jesus is like a child not so much because he was short, but because of the way that he pursues Jesus. Just think about it. Who in your life climbs trees? The only people I know who climb trees are children or adults who are particularly childlike. In our story, we see Zacchaeus do what no self-respecting man in Jericho would do. He runs through a crowd and he climbs up a tree. Zacchaeus enters the kingdom like a little child. And lastly, Zacchaeus is a social outcast like the lepers. And this I think is where we can feel the scandal of grace most deeply. Like the lepers, Zacchaeus is an outcast. But there's one really big difference between Zacchaeus and the lepers. The lepers didn't choose their disease, but Zacchaeus chose his. Zacchaeus is a very sick man. Our passage tells us that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. That means he's a Jew working for the man, for the oppressor. And that means he's a traitor. Zacchaeus is rotten. As he collected taxes for Caesar, he got rich off of his fellow Jews by demanding more money from them than they actually owed. And Luke tells us that he's not any old tax collector. He's the chief tax collector, which means he was the very best at ripping off his own people. Zacchaeus is a powerful man who exploited the weak and powerless even among his own people. It's hard to imagine doing this kind of work. Makes you wonder if Zacchaeus just lived with the stink of his own sin long enough that he eventually just got used to it. Well, one thing is for certain, the people never did. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. Everyone who knew him hated him. And you can tell that they hated him based on their reaction to this encounter with Jesus. In verse five, when Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' tree, he looks up and he said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus invites himself over for dinner. And this is an undeniable sign of fellowship, even of friendship. Jesus is doing what always got him in trouble. He's hanging out with sinners, except this time it's a little bit different. Some sinners are more acceptable than others, aren't they? Normally, when Jesus hangs with sinners and eats with them, it's just the religious leaders who grumble. But listen closely. Who do we hear grumbling in our passage? Everyone. In verse 7, all who saw it began to grumble. Why? Everyone grumbled because everyone hated Zacchaeus. And for the crowds, this was just too much. Children being fit for the kingdom of God, okay, that maybe makes sense. Lepers, mm, okay, Jesus, if you say so, but Zacchaeus, not Zacchaeus. This guy was just one step too far, one step too far for Jesus's grace. I wonder if you've ever felt that way. I suspect we all have our own limits for God's grace, if we're honest with ourselves. We have our limits for who is and who just absolutely is not worthy of Jesus's time and attention. In my experience, our own limits usually correspond with people that we hate. Maybe it's an abusive spiritual leader or an evil politician. Maybe it's someone from another political party or another denomination or another tribe. We all have our own lines. The people in Jericho certainly did, and for them, their line was Zacchaeus. And this is the scandal of grace. Jesus finds that line, and he walks right over it on his way to Jerusalem. On his way to the cross, where he would pour out his grace on the whole wide and undeserving world. Now, ironically, Zacchaeus' name literally means righteous one. And this chief tax collector was anything and everything but righteous. And yet, Jesus says this man, this unrighteous man is fit for the kingdom and Zacchaeus receives grace. Why him? Why him of all people? Well, I think it's because he knows that he needs it. He knows that he's lost. Zacchaeus is exactly the kind of person that Jesus came to seek and to save. I wonder if you can relate to that. Well, in this very bad man, we are confronted with the scandal of grace, the scandal of Jesus Christ. And what I want to do now is look at what Zacchaeus has to show us about what grace does. I want to look at the effects of grace. And our passage shows us that grace can have one of two effects. We've already seen one grace either makes us grumble or it makes us joyful. Grace is divisive, it's polarizing. Grace will either make you angry and bitter or grace will change your life. And grace changes Zacchaeus. It transforms him from being an absolute scoundrel to a man who seeks to repair the damage that his greed and selfishness have caused for years. And it happens quite fast, so I don't want us to miss how grace unfolds in this story. After Jesus spots Zacchaeus in verse five, he tells that grown man to get out of the tree and he invites himself over for dinner. And in verse six, we see that Zacchaeus quickly obeys and he welcomes Jesus with joy. Wherever you see quick obedience and joy, you know that grace is doing its work. And then in verse seven, we hear that Zacchaeus is called a sinner. Now notice what Zacchaeus doesn't do when he hears the fact that he's being called a sinner. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't deflect. He doesn't defend himself. He owns it and he takes responsibility for his sin. He vows to make it right. And how does he do that? Well, he promises restitution. He promises to restore what he stole to its proper owners. And this is what we call reparations. He's repairing the damage his sin has caused and he's restoring people back to wholeness. Zacchaeus is making reparation. And Zacchaeus goes all in. I think this is part of his personality. Whatever he does, he does it with all his heart, whether that's extorting people, whether that's climbing trees, whether that's repenting. But this response to grace isn't just Zacchaeus's personality. What Zacchaeus is doing is what the Torah requires for thieves. This is what the Torah requires for people who steal. Now, depending on the nature of the theft, passages like Leviticus 6 and Exodus 22, they require a thief to restore what was was stolen plus some. So the extra amount would range anywhere from 20% to 500% of what you stole. So if you stole $100, you would owe $120 back. If you stole one ox, you would owe five oxen. If you stole one sheep, you would owe four sheep, depending on the nature of the theft. And I think this means that Zacchaeus's response to pay reparations is not simply descriptive. He's not just doing this out of the goodness of his own heart. He's doing what the love of God and the love of neighbor require according to God's holy word. Reparations are prescriptive. And as we consider how the scene unfolds, I think the order of of events is really important. It's very important to see that the vow to pay reparations is not the reason why Jesus accepts him. In other words, repentance is not the cause of grace, it is its effect. Here's how one commentator puts it, he writes, Jesus does not require Zacchaeus to change before he takes up residence with him. Jesus first takes up residence and his very presence evokes the transformation in Zacchaeus. Reparations don't save Zacchaeus. Instead, repairing the damage he he has done is the evidence of his saving faith. It's proof that he too is a son of Abraham. And in verse nine, what we read is that Jesus witnesses this work of grace, and he's confirming his salvation. Zacchaeus has a lot to teach us about grace and I think one of the most important things he has to teach us is the difference between what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace and what he calls costly grace. Cheap grace chops the gospel in half. It distorts the good news into a deadly half-truth. This is what Bonhoeffer writes. Cheap grace means the justification of sin without the justification of the sinner. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. Cheap grace says, I can be forgiven, but I don't need to change. It says, Jesus can heal me, but I don't actually need to follow him. Cheap grace says, I can receive God's love, but I don't need to bother about loving my neighbor or fixing the things that I've done wrong. Isaiah chapter 1 shows us what cheap grace looks like. Cheap grace says, I can go to church on Sunday, but I can continue to practice evil Monday to Saturday. It says, I can lift up my hands in prayer, even when they're full of blood. Costly grace is quite different. Here's how Bonhoeffer describes costly grace. He writes, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his whole life and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. The story of Zacchaeus shows us that cheap grace is wrong for two reasons. The first reason it's wrong is that grace isn't cheap, it's free. The second is that grace isn't cheap, it costs everything. Unrighteous Zacchaeus brings nothing to the table, even to his own table, but his sweating, stinking, sinful self. And Jesus sees him despite this, and he calls him by his name, Zacchaeus. In the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus gets a taste of grace, a taste of the good stuff, and he's changed. He's found the hidden treasure and he gives back everything he stole plus some in order to follow Jesus Christ grace is free and grace costs everything and of course grace doesn't fix everything about Zacchaeus at least not right away but grace does create new impulses and new instincts new ways of being in the world Zacchaeus repents he turns from ravage, ravaging his community by stealing to repairing his community through restitution. This is what grace does. And if grace isn't doing this, then it just might not be grace. I think when grace hits us, real grace, not its cheap counterfeit, it begins to repair our hearts and our souls and our mind. When grace hits us, it begins to untangle the knot of sin in our lives and it leads us to help people that we have hurt. And it does even more, it it leads us to help people that even others have hurt. Grace makes us like Zacchaeus, people who seek to love God back by loving our neighbors as ourselves. You know, I began my sermon by saying that it wasn't going to be about reparations so much as it is about grace. And I hope by now you can see how the two are connected. I think that when we understand, and not just understand, but really experience grace, reparations stop being a scandal, and they become common sense. Grace transforms reparations from being a bad word to being a beautiful word, because repairing the wounds of sin is not just where Jesus leads us, it's where Jesus always is. Amen.